I then realized that actually I can't give up the Christian side of my life and I can't give up the gay side of my life so I'm just going to have to work out how to do this together. And that's been a real struggle. It hasn't been easy at all because, you know, the gay community sort of won't accept you because you're, you're one of those people that have rejected them their entire life. And the Christian community won't accept you fully because you're not quite a Christian. You've got this kind of weird, loose theology. This is Down to Earth Conversations, where we hear from ordinary people who are helping to bring a bit of heaven down to earth. Kia ora. Welcome to another episode of Down to Earth Conversations. Ko Andy Dixon, Toku Ingwa. My name is Andy, and I'm excited to bring you another fantastic conversation today. Our guest this week is Craig Watson. Craig has worked in project management for the 2011 Rugby World Cup, the 2012 London Olympics, and also the Christchurch earthquake recovery. We talk about all of that and about how his love of people sits first and foremost in his projects. This is a man who really does care. We also have the privilege of hearing some of Craig's journey of being gay and Christian, his fight within himself to be straight, and then his acceptance of who he is, and his desire for safe spaces and belonging for others in the same boat. We're not going to get into theology in this episode. This isn't about who is right and who is wrong. It's a chance for us to stop, put our preconceptions aside, and just listen to Craig's experience. Listen to what it has been like for him. You know, here's a guy who often doesn't find a fit in the LGBT community because he embraces a faith that's at the centre of so much pain for many of them. But who also doesn't really find a fit in much of the church because he isn't really considered a proper Christian. You know, he doesn't have all his ducks in a row. So please receive his vulnerability as a gift and treat it well. It's a genuine and love-filled conversation. This is episode 47 of Down to Earth Conversations. Here's Craig Watson. Oh, Craig, thanks for joining me. Kia ora. Kia ora, thank you. Uh, why don't we just start with you sharing a little bit about who you are. Nor here, queer. Who are you? Where are you from? Yeah, I am Craig uh, Watson, and I grew up in the sunny North Auckland in a little place called Oriwa. Um, it's a beach town, so I grew up, yeah, hanging out on a really lovely beach, and but also just I grew up on a farm, so um, was used to the rural rural lifestyle. It was quite it was a quite a treat. Um, Would that farm still exist these days, or is it all residential? Yeah, it does. It's a little, it's a lifestyle farm, so yeah, it's right. not twenty five acres, but yeah, they've still got it. I mean, we would like to subdivide it, but um, but yeah, it's not not quite there yet. We're still a, still a little bit rural, but it was yeah. We grew up in a you know I was quite fortunate. Grew up on a really big area, um, you know, where we had lots of room to kind of play and explore and you know um, enjoy animals and things like that, which is good fun. Yeah, and now I am living in Wellington. Um, been here three years in June, um, and I work um, here for New Zealand Defence Force as a people manager. So that's what I'm doing currently. Cool. I've been looking a bit at your work history on your LinkedIn and things, and um, so you've you've been a project manager in a, in a bunch of different uh, organisations, and you've been involved in some fairly big events over your time as well. Um, I noticed you've been part of the Rugby World Cup when it was in New Zealand and also the London Olympics. But what, yeah. what was it like to be part of those kind of major events? It was a bit of a dream come true, really, and it was like a, how the heck did that happen? I had just graduated my um, degree in theology at Kerry Baptist College, and I had a bit of free time before I could sort of start full-time work. And um, I had signed up to be a volunteer with the Rugby World Cup. And so I just messaged them and said, hey, look, I'm, I'm free if you want some volunteer people to come and help prior to the event. And they said, oh, we'd love that. So um, jumped on um, their team and they said, oh, we'd actually love you to do a little bit more work. And so I said, well, look, I can't really do volunteer work for sort of three days a week. And they said, oh, no, we were thinking about offering you a job. 
And I get this phone call from the HR person offering me a full-time job for way more money than I was expecting. And she sort of apologized for that amount. And um, yeah, that was kind of it. And then at the end of it, somebody said to me, well, where are you, what are you, what's your next plan? And I said, oh, I, I don't know. This is kind of my first but a major event. Um, and they said, oh, we all sort of are on this buzz 24-7. So we just pop around the world to the next thing. And the next event was the London 2012 Olympics. And I said, why don't you just join us for that? And so within a month, I had my bags packed and I was on, on a plane over to London. Wow. Yeah. And, and what was your actual role you were doing? So for the Olympics, I was the technology manager for the Olympic Park and um, one of the venues there in, in Olympic Park. So it was really great. I got to work with the opening and closing ceremonies um, team and did little fun things like um, when Paul McCartney, who was the opening act for the opening ceremony, he forgot his trousers. So I had to go and get them from the rehearsal venue and bring them to him at the, before he went on stage. So there was sort of fun little crazy moments like that. But it was just, it was so fun because everyone was pumped and we were all energized and we all had to deliver this major event. And it was kind of like all, um, all stops were removed and you could just do whatever you needed to to get the job done. It was, yeah, it was good well, fun. I'm in Christchurch in Ototahi. And I noticed that you were also uh, a key person involved after the 2011 earthquake. Uh, do you want to tell yeah. us a bit about what, what that was and what your experience with that was like? Yeah, that was, um, that was a really cha- life-changing experience. My dad's a, an engineer and got a message from the, inter- uh, the New Zealand Association of Engineers to say, hey, would anyone have the time available to come down and assess the buildings for those that you remember the little stickers they put on the red, orange, and green stickers. And dad said, yeah, absolutely. He'll come down. And I said, well, dad, I'm free. Why don't I come down too? Um, And at that stage I was just doing some remote study, I think. And so he wrote back and said, Hey, look, you know, my son's available. He's a project manager, but also really good at organizing things. And so I was on a, on a plane down there, even before my father was, um, to organize all of those engineers um, and to organize all accommodation and vehicles and transport and how they were going to do that, organize the accreditation that, um, so, you know, we were inventing systems, obviously, to try and respond to this earthquake. So, you know, we had no way of letting who could go into the red zone and who couldn't. So, you know, I had to invent a system for that. We were sitting in a meeting every morning with the national controller, just listening to updates on all the teams on how they were going. And they'd be like, who can do this? Who can do this? And so you just kind of stick your hand up and take, take jobs. But I remember this, um, you know, it was quite, so I, my Nana um, lived in Christchurch. And so we used to go to Christchurch all the time for holidays to see her. Um, So Christchurch was, you know, a special place for me. And, um, I remember I must have been there only maybe three weeks for a holiday before the earthquake happened. And um, I remember, you know, going down Colombo Street and seeing the the buildings, all the big glass in them. And then the first time that I went in that red zone and just saw buildings like crumbled and that those glass structures not there. And there's this, um, I took a photo of it actually, and it still kind of freaks me out to this day, but there was a cafe where um, there was still a latte with the latte art still made on top of it and an orange juice sitting on a cafe table. And either side of it was, um, and the two chairs were there, so the people who were sitting there were obviously safe, but either side of it, the building had crumbled down. And it was quite a scary sort of moment to see that. And and you saw um, fresh fruit and vegetable shops just with their fruit still out and, and now rotting. But you know, you think, man, time just sort of stood still and everything kind of just paused and there exactly the way it was when that earthquake, you know, hit. And it was quite scary. Um, and then there was obviously the aftershocks and they kept, you know, everyone sort of going, oh, is that it? Is, or is there a, is there another one, you know? I, I was quite, um, I suppose I was quite excited for the job, but I also had to hold in, in my mind that, you know, for a lot of people, who experienced the the earthquake I arrived after it it was really traumatic you know and that there were lives lost and so you know it was a privilege to come down and and kind of help where I could but also it was you know I was really kind of um respectful of the fact that I was walking into a place which you know had a lot of grief and um emotion around it yeah I guess in some ways 
your not having been here and experienced it would have been helpful for you to actually be able to get on with your role without the grief and stuff that was packaged in the back of yeah. that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was able to kind of just get in and roll my sleeves up. I didn't have family there anymore, um, so I didn't have to worry about, you know, those people. Didn't have loved ones there, so that my loved ones are all safe. So I could just get in, roll my sleeves up, and get on with it. And while the, while you know, Canterburyans dealt with the their homes, their families, you know, the loss of income, etc. How did you get into project management to start with? Yeah. Um, I guess my love really came from doing the church. I, I, um, I'm often asked this question, how did you get into it? And it comes right back to, um, I remember as a sort of 15-year-old organising Easter camps with my pastor, uh, my youth pastor. And, you know, I was organising the budgets, I was organising all the logistics, the, the marquees, the catering, the whole lot. And I kind of pinch myself now and go, man, that was amazing sort of work experience. And then that kind of trend, my youth pastor became the director of the Northern BYM Easter Camp, which was yeah. the biggest one at really Mystery big. Creek. Yeah. And that was 7,000 people when I was doing it. And again, so I assisted him with all of that organizing. So I, I suppose I started out in event management and then event management is quite similar to project management, just organizing things, making sure things happen on time and getting people um, energized and on board to do deliver what you want them to do. And those are things that I seem to be quite good at. And you also spent time doing some youth work yourself, um, working in, with kids in prison and stuff. Tell us yeah. about that. Yeah, so um, I, again, when I was, I, I grew up um, in a Baptist church up in North Auckland and was um, sort of assisting the youth pastor there. We planted a church in Silverdale and I sort of was the, I suppose, the second sort of youth pastor, if you like, um, but also led the worship teams and um, I kind of took a bit of a break from that. Um, my my young, um, I sort of started off with a young group of guys and they grew up to 18 and sort of went went to universities all over the country. And I sort of went, well, I'll take a bit of a break now. And so I'm with a friend of mine. We um, He invited me to come and work, do the Alpha program initially in prison. Um, and I really found this love for working with, I, I suppose these people who I, I read was a really privileged spot, uh, uh, town. You know, everyone's making good money. Everyone's traditionally white and very privileged. And I didn't realize that really until you step away and you see the other the, the other half of the world, or the you know more than half. But um, and so I was meeting kids who hadn't had a parent to that told them that they were loved or hadn't had parents who had said hey what do you want to do with your life you know um and so I was chatting to these young guys um in Auckland Raman prison and they were telling me stories like um you know on the weekend they were bored in their little hometown so they would drive a, a ute into 100% electrical or one of those Dick Smith shops and the game was to see how many things they could get out of the shop before the police turned up and so you're like man this is this is tragic that this is what these young young guys are doing for fun, but they've got no other interests. You know, no one has ever said to them, what do you want to do with your life? And and then kind of encourage them to get on with that. So I then started a little program in the prison to sort of give these guys, and I, and I simply asked them, what would you like to do? What If I could wave a magic wand and you could do any job in the world, what would you like to do? What are your passions? And we explored their strengths and, um, some of their values to kind of work out when they got out of prison, what might they then go and start doing at say university or polytech or something like that. Yeah. Um, but I remember that one of the scariest moments for me was I was with um, one of these young guys and they were there. So the way Raman prison works is they keep, if you're 17 you're about to turn 18. They'll keep you in a separate part of the Raman prison. Um, and so these young people are all in this in this separate part of the prison. But because they're 17, they're all pretty pumped and they're all, you know, all they do is basically work out all day. Um, and they think they're the kingpin, you know, they think they're really, they're the top of the, they're the top of the pyramid for their, where they are. But of course, when they turn 18, they become an adult. So they get moved over into the adult wing 
and I remember um, going to check up on one of the guys who had been moved over to the adult wing, and I sort of went into the went into the area. I said, "Hey, you want to come and come and have a chat?" And he was like, "Oh, I don't want to have a chat with you. You know, I don't need a chat with you." And and I said, "Come on, come on." So we brought him through into the into this meeting room that we went and closed the door. And as soon as the door closed, he burst into tears and he said, "Get me out of here." You know, he um, you know, he said it's really horrible in here. I'm now, you know, treated at the bottom of the pyramid. I'm, you know, I'm treated as, you know, all those scenarios that you hear about prison are all true, um, you know. And he was, you know, he was really struggling. And you could see that these kids who were like, you know, were really taking a second guess at what their life was. And I just, yeah, for me, it really kind of, again, changed my viewpoint to thinking, how can I deal, how can I support these marginalised people? You know, these, these people who haven't been asked, what do you want to do with your life? And kind of encouraged to do that i think it's interesting even hearing you talking about it um there's that sense of you know they have they have ended up in prison because of something they've done but they've also ended up in prison because of the way that society has pushed them you know shaped them molded them whatever you want to say that we've got these structures or we don't have these structures whichever way you look at it that um that privileges some and not others and uh and when you're in that privileged group, it's really easy not to see that. Um, so, yeah, I find it fascinating, too, that when I've been in situations of the type you're describing, um, you, you kind of can go in thinking, well, I'm I'm here to teach these guys something. And then you find out that actually you're the one doing most of the learning. Um, was it like that for you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I suppose a little bit like you, my went in thinking, right, prisoners have done something bad. They deserve to be here. But, um, you know, we want to change them so that when they do eventually get out, they don't do it again. Right. So it's our job to change them. But actually, I came out going, no, no, we've got to change society to stop them from getting there. Um, it's actually they, 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 you know, they. it's our fault that they got there. It's, you know, it's, you know, our country needs to step up and realise that we're not we're not supporting those who are in these smaller communities that don't have a, a parent, two parent, or you know, a parent or a parent figure who's really investing into them. You know, mm. yeah, that seems to be kind of something that has carried on in your life in terms of like you you've been doing these events, but they seem to be very much based around people and. Like you find, you keep finding yourselves in roles where you're managing people and bringing teams together. Do you think those things are related? The the having a heart for the people in in prison and and also the way that you work with your teams. Yeah, I, um, the boss that I currently work under is a friend of a friend. Uh, sorry, is a cousin of a friend, and she sat me down and she said, "Craig, what do you want to do? You know, for your life?" And I said, "Wow, that's really interesting. That's the first time I've I've ever been asked that, but that's a question I often ask others." And I said to her, well, I, I really want to help people grow, develop people. I said, my favorite job was a job that I did back in England after the Olympics, where I took a bunch of technical sort of geeks um, in the production world, and I got them talking about feelings. I got them talking about where they want to go on their career. Um, I got them interacting with each other. You know, some of them would just go and hide in a studio all day and you sort of really weren't sure what they were actually delivering. We got them to talk about their performance. And for me, that was a real win. When I got to leave that job, you know, I looked back at the team and I saw a team of sort of really well-oiled, really passionate people who cared for the job that they were doing and the company they were working for. Um, and a lot of them went on to much bigger jobs um, in the production industry because we kind of, you know, I pulled them together, gave them some self-confidence and kind of helped them to see their potential. And that's exactly now what I'm doing in the job as well. Um, I'm, I'm working with IT geeks, IT engineers who, you know, a lot of these people haven't spoken about feelings, you know, they talk, haven't talked about their mental health. And I'm able to kind of, um, I'm, I'm quite vulnerable with them and share some of my past to get them to open up and share. Um, I remember our first day, we all sat in a big circle and I, I just shared with them, yeah, I, I, I'm somebody who does this and I'm involved in the rainbow community and I go to church and, and everyone was like, oh, well, you took that to a different level. You know, you took that to a different, um, you didn't just ask us where we were, where we grew up and what our name is. You actually kind of introduced a bit more. And what I noticed is a lot of the 
the the engineers started coming to me with problems about their you know in their own families and with their own partners um and sort of asking for advice or you know comfortable to share that with me and i thought well that's really rewarding for me something i see a lot is that vulnerability breeds vulnerability doesn't it when you mm. when you are able to be authentic and share who you are other people feel comfortable to do the same yeah exactly the other thing actually i love about about that um journey for you is that uh, it, it's easy to look at you going into the prison and going, oh, hey, that's doing good in the world. But actually, you're taking that same heart into your business practices. you know. Mm. And, and for my listeners will know, I bang on about this all the time, but actually it's about doing what you can with what you have where you are, you know, and that you don't have to leave your job and go work in a prison to be able to have that same um, heart of doing good in the world. So exactly. so great to hear you doing that in, in that business kind of setting. Let's talk about Diverse Church, which is where I first encountered you. Do you want to explain, I guess, what it is and where it came from? Yeah, sure. So Diverse Church is 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 simply, a, a I suppose, a network or an online community uh, that does meet for conferences every other year. And it's aimed at supporting LGBT Christians or people who have a faith. And so the story behind it, I for 29 years of my life or 30 years of my life, struggled with my own sexuality. Um, growing up in a Baptist conservative church, I, I knew the feelings that I was having um, for people of the same sex as myself, um, male on male attraction. I was, I was as, as my friends were kind of talking about girls growing up in, in their 13, 14, I was not kind of with them on that, but I was kind of feeling that, same sort of attraction to them or to some of the other guys that I was around. And I, I immediately kind of went, you know, I suppose to the to my teachings that I had learned at Sunday school and, and as a as a youth person and was, you know, knew that because it just about once a year you would have these sex talks at youth group that would talk about, you know, that marriage is between a man and a woman and and that's it. And any sex outside of that is considered evil. And also anything that's same sex, you know, is, is, is an abomination, meaning, you know, subhuman. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that, that, those kind of indoctrination, if you like, really ingrained in my brain and really formed these very, very strong pathways that the feelings that I were feeling were wrong and I was wrong. Um, I also grew up ADHD. So I was ADHD um, from a, you know, no, diagnosed from five. And my mum wouldn't let me sort of go out anywhere until I had taken this pill. So I, I, I established this kind of thing that I was sort of faulty and needed to take this medication in order to be right. And I think that also then plugged in and fit really well with the um, I'm gay, therefore faulty and need to, you know, need to really fight that, that, that thing, that disease to be normal. But, uh, you know, it's quite funny now I look back and I remember, you know, lingering around the farmer's underwear section, looking at the multi-packs of underwear, thinking, man, I really like the guy on the cover of that. But I, I'd always have to go, oh, no, that's really bad thought and, and leave and walk away. So I then started some conversion therapy and, and that didn't quite work. And, um, and when this opportunity came to move to London, I connected in with a church and said, hey, look, I'm, I'm struggling with same-sex attraction. Do you know any courses that I can do over here to, um, you know, sort of change me? And they recommended a couple, but I couldn't start them because of my work commitments. Um, but anyway, it ended, the, the, it was sort of resulted in me falling in love with somebody over there, um, a guy over there. And um, it led to me going through a bit of a, a rough patch with depression um, and the work found out, and I was working for a church at this stage, work found out that what was going on and it, it kind of meant that I had, they wanted me to stand down from some of my leadership roles um, and um, it, it eventually it got me um, to a place where I had to say to one of my friends who I thought was quite a conservative Christian would probably not react very well to this um i said to him he said to me look craig what's going on there's something you're not telling me i'm uh, and i i'm your friend i should know and i said to him look i'm i think i'm gay um 
and I just don't know what to do with it. I've tried to get rid of it and I can't. And he said, oh, you need to come and talk to my dad. He's kind of gone through this process to, um, you know, and he doesn't think that gay people are uh, uh, is a, is a, an issue um, um, for for God. And so I spent the day, you know, it's really weird. You sort of jumped on this train, went down to the south coast of England, and you think you're sort of going to have this sort of one hour Oh, look, you know, sorry, I can have a coffee with you, but it's got to be an hour exactly with a pastor. He took the whole day, just we walked around the city, we walked well, his little town, we walked through the bush, we had lunch at his house, had dinner with his family, and he just really took me through the Bible and really undid in one day what I had really drawn on my whole life from doctrine and scripture. So I then sort of, I, I suppose, came out to myself that, yep, this is who I am and I shouldn't keep fighting it. Um, and I've been this way for a long time. And he said to me, the worst thing probably, Craig, that you're struggling with at the moment is that you're constantly been not telling your parents the truth. You know, you've been sort of lying to your parents when they've asked you if you're, if you're gay, you've been saying, no, I don't want to be, you know. Um, and what that sort of led me to do is look for what is there in London for LGBT Christians. And I came across a group called Diverse Church UK. And they were mainly for under 30 year olds. And at this stage, I was 31. So I wasn't really allowed to sort of join the group. Um, they needed to keep it a safe space for the young people. Um, so I totally got that. And they were just, a, again, just a community who just met up in different parts of London um, for coffees and desserts, and um, and sometimes they went to some churches that they knew were affirming, and there were a few of those in London. Um, but they were just a space that you know people could connect online and know that they weren't the only one, the only gay in the village, so to speak. Um, yeah, and so I ended up yeah, losing my job because I was gay. I came out um, to the in the church, and it meant that I had to return home to New Zealand. Um, so when I returned home, I again did a Google search on, um, to, you know, gay, gay Christian New Zealand is what I typed in. And the sort of top five results were, you know, the, there's a pastor over in West Auckland who's written some really nasty sermons about homosexuals. There's, um, you know, there was a, basically a bunch of books that came up of, you know, you shouldn't be gay and here's how to change. There was this thing, there's a guy down in Nelson who says that he can change you that came up. And I mean, I said, and the only positive thing I saw was a church in Auckland, um, the Auckland Rainbow Community Church, that popped up. And I thought, is this it? Like, is this is this the only resources we've got that are positive? And I said, well, I'm going to start up a something that provides people with some positive um, positive narratives, a different conversation, some you know, maybe we're a you know a fifteen or sixteen year old me could Google and go, oh okay, there is actually a possibility I I can be gay and be Christian. It's not such an oxymoron. Um, and so I, yeah, I think I literally just one night just secured the domain name diversechurch.co.nz, grabbed the you know Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and started creating a bit of a website. Um, with some resources that I knew existed, um, some books that I had drawn upon and, and did some research, some wider research around the world on affirming books and put them on there, grabbed some podcasts and some videos and kind of started this um, in probably in a couple of nights, started this thing called Diverse Church. Um, and I then... Um, went along to the Auckland Community Rainbow Church and they connected me there with a, a few other people that were um, well-connected. Peter Lynham um, is obviously a really well-known person in that space. Um, and then there were some people here in Wellington uh, that that came up immediately. And so we, it kind of immediately got to the space where, okay, we've now got a core group. Um, we've got, there's a little group of us. We need to have a conference. You know, we need to a post a gathering and at that stage um there's a guy called justin lee in the states had just produced a book called torn um and was really kind of making headway in this space um because he was again one of these gay christians in his book he sort of writes that he wasn't interfered with by his father or you know he wasn't 
he did have a, his parents were married and he had a great supportive dad. So, you know, all of this kind of stuff, which Christians will often throw out there to say, this is why you're gay. It's because you've, you know, you've had a problem with your dad or something. And he also went through all that, you know, trying not to be as well, didn't he? Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, his story was quite new because it had kind of come out and gone, oh, actually this person... He's actually writing a different story. So we got him over to New Zealand, and that was a bit of a pull card, um, and it kind of pulled a lot of these LGBT Christians out of the woodwork. And um, and we got together, and, it, and for me it was the first time I went, wow, there is a group of us. I'm not alone, you know. And they went, I'm not alone. It was, you know, it was great to see people of uh, different races, different ages, genders, all, all there. Um, and so that we held that first one in Ponsonby, uh, we've held another one in Ponsonby after that at um, the Baptist Church. Um, and we got over Patrick uh, Otruma. Oh, yeah. Patrick yeah. Otruma. Yeah. A f- uh, just an amazing activist. Yeah. Um, and he just wrote some poetry that was so powerful. And it just – so the – the first, the first time I ran the conference, I, I wanted to kind of, um, I suppose I'm a bit of an activist. And so what I wanted to do was invite my pastors who hadn't accepted me um, or didn't think that being gay was okay. And I wanted to get them to hear Justin's story and kind of get them to be changed. I wanted, you know, wanted so badly for that. I was, you know, I was angry. I was hurt. And after that, first conference I realized actually I don't care what these I mean I care but I I can't keep caring about what these pastors you know that they're not going to change I I remember my pastor saying to me when I came back and said I said to him I was gay he said to me Craig there's probably nothing we can do for like 20 years when you know eventually people like me will move on and the new generation will come through and I said so why do we have to wait 20 years you know why don't we do it now I was really frustrated um so when I planned the second conference, I actually just wanted to host a gathering of our LGBT community across New Zealand, um, and that would inspire them. Like any any church conference you go to, you walk away feeling pumped from. Um, I just wanted to do that for our LGBT people, so provide a safe space that was affirming for them and one that they walked away from going, man, I love Jesus, man, I want to serve the community and Patrick, um, Padrick, um, just gave some brilliant poetry which really inspired people to keep fighting, to keep loving, to keep serving, um, and that God was a soft, loving, spiritual being that just wanted to hold us, you know. And I remember that feeling as he took us through these the, these poetry um, and messages. Um, and then we had our third conference down here in Wellington this year. Uh, last year and as part of the pride um festival down here and uh this time we got along three speakers um elizabeth kitty kitty andre from um the seven day adventist oh and peter peter linham yeah and um elizabeth kitty kitty just gave this beautiful she's an mp for the greens at the moment and she gave this beautiful sort of looking back in Māori history where um, there was a whare that was sacred for LGBT people or people of all gender, all, um, mm. no matter what they assigned with. And, you know, he, she also referred to the fact that gender is a construct that was brought in by the missionaries. But she um, said that there was a place where they could reflect on their ancestors and learn for their ancestors. There was a place for healing. There was a place for listening and learning from each other. And I just thought, wow, this is what you're describing for me sounds like a church um, or what a church should be. You know, it was a shelter for people who needed ne- needed a place to go. Um, and I, yeah, so it was quite emotional. But so now we're a, we've got a, a website. Um, there's now a, a trust. We're a registered charity now. There's a trustee board that kind of governs Diverse Church. Um, and there's some really passionate allies and LGBT folk who are on that who want to see LGBT people safe. We're, we're doing some work trying to work with um, churches about, uh, there's a, in a group in America called churchclarity.org, and it's just a way of saying, hey, if your church is affirming, we want to know about that, you know, and this is what it means to be affirming. So we're working on some things like that, um, working with the Anglican Church down here in Wellington to see if we can 
do something there as well to there's a lot of lgbt christians down here in wellington it's it's an amazing down here um or there is all over new zealand actually and um but it's how to make sure that those people feel safe i think that's there's something like just as a side topic as i grew up in the church you got kind of led to believe that these gay people were out there somewhere you never got any sense that there were any in the church mm. and yet i mean your your experience is otherwise um personally but also actually the more i've looked the more i've found actually there are there are people who are gay who are christian all over the place you know around the world mm. you're talking well you know millions of them yeah and and so it's not this thing that's completely separate from christianity that christians can can think about as other you know it's actually hey this is part of us um and i think i think that even the the thinking of people as other is problematic but you know that's what i grew up with mm. um so yeah i, I think that's a, a really key point that you just made that that actually there are gay christians all around the country and um and how do they feel safe in the spaces that they are because you know, without diverse church, there's actually not necessarily that much in the way of support for a lot of them. Mm. Um, is that your experience? I mean, that that's what I've noticed, but uh, you're you're kind of more in the thick of it. Is is that what you're noticing? Yeah, yeah. I'm just you know reflecting on what you were saying. I I, I remember when I grew up, um, I used to think that um, gay people essentially were running around on K Road up in Auckland in a in a sequin G string, you know, in a and a policeman's hat on or something like that. And that was, that was what those people were. And so I didn't want to, I didn't want to, I've got no interest in putting on a G string and a, and a, and a policeman's hat and running around on K road. So, um, you know, I just didn't associate with those people and thought that that's not going to be me. Um, so it was really, it was really interesting to, I suppose, um, meet some people, um, and I think it was the first time I met them was in England where I kind of went, oh, you're, you're, you're a gay Christian and you're not like that. You know, you're, you're sort of, quite, you're still passionate about Jesus. You're still a, you know, you're still a normal human being. Um, so when I came back and I found those people here, yeah, my eyes were like really opened. I was like, actually, these people are just normal people. You know, they just, they just love the same gender that they are, you know. Um, but they still are passionate about Jesus. And actually, you know, I might get in trouble for saying this, but I found that a lot of these people had some really strong Christian values because they've had to fight for them, you know. And when I I did some work for um, the Auckland Pride Festival a long, long time ago, and part of that I met a lot of LGBT uh, people, and the amount of people that I, I said, you know, I am go to church and they're like, oh, wow, I used to go to church. I used to be in the worship band. But, you know, because I was gay, I couldn't I couldn't carry on. You know, and I think, yeah, actually, if you look around the LGBT community, there's a lot of creativity. There's a lot of there's a lot of love. There's a lot of soft men there and, 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 and caring men. And that was the sort of the communities that I was sort of talking to. But there's also some, you know, really creative women and um and non-binary space there's you know those spiritual soft hearted people um and a lot of them you if you go back they grew up in in christian communities you know they were taught those values of loving your neighbor from churches but when it came to them having to choose between their sexuality and their faith um the two they they they, they wanted to reconcile them but they couldn't because the indoctrination so they they left they left the church and this is the bit that crushes me the most that they couldn't feel like they could bring the two together so they had they had to pick their sexuality that was the one that they couldn't change or their gender identity and they walked away from the church and that's the bit i get crushed by because i'm like that shouldn't have been the case you know we should have we should have made a space for them that actually they could have stayed and been them and been their creative spaces because we're missing some amazing people. Yeah. And like you say, that uh, a space that talks about being welcoming and inclusive often for people in that kind of space doesn't feel like that. Yeah, yeah. I just want to say, putting this conversation out there, you know, we're not trying to have a theological argument for anything here. You know, there's lots of places to go and learn about that. 
Um, and Diverse Church will have a, a range of resources there as well. Um, but what I do want to do is put out this conversation and say, you know, how are we loving people? How are we caring for people? Because mm. um, actually, you know, even if your theology says, uh, it, it lies on the more conservative side of things in regard to this, you're still actually called to love. And what does that look like? Um, and how do we do that? And how do we stay in dialogue? Because, um, yeah, I know you, you've been someone who's been really open to dialogue with people who don't think the same way as you. Um, but that hasn't always been reciprocated for you. Mm. Um, I was reading about an experience you had with taking a group to Festival One. Do you want to just share a little bit about that and what went on there? Yeah, yeah. So um, one of the groups that has uh, done a lot of work in this in this space is a group called Incido, and they came out. They were formed out of a, another group that um, called YFC or Youth for Christ that a lot of people know back in my generation, um, and. Um, and CEDO have been doing for a long time this um, these kind of little forums around the country called A Different Conversation. And the idea being that, that everyone knows the conversation that being gay is not okay. So they wanted to have a different conversation. You know, what if being gay and being Christian was okay? And so they got a number of people in to talk about their experiences and about their life um, and just kind of op- open people's mind up to a different perspective. I think one of the things that I have learned growing up is a lot of people um, who have quite conservative theology don't know or, ne- or they probably do know, but they don't know or have dialogue with somebody who is gay. Um, and that would be my number one recommendation for anybody that is, that is, you know, really challenging with this theology stuff. Go and go, just go and take a, an LGBT person out for coffee and just listen to their story. Um, listen to what brought them to where they are today um, because it could change your life, you know, and it will just give you a perspective on on your thinking. Um, yeah, but flicking flicking back, we were, um, this group in CEDO invited me and a, a, a bunch of their people to come to Festival One. Um, we, were, we were given permission to set up a site um, where we could just offer um, a space for LGBT people at Festival One to kind of hang out with other people and also offer a, a challenge to people who were thinking about the LGBT Christian topic um, and, and and do some interactive activities. And so Encido has a pretty good rep in the Christian community. So we filled in the application form to Festival One and the the people who were organizing the sites at Festival One didn't didn't actually read what we had put in the what we were going to do um, at Festival One. They just saw in CEDO, went, yep, I'll be cool, ticked them off and we we were we got given the green light. I was actually quite surprised that we got given the green light. But thought, no, this is cool. Festival One's this new edgy um, um, kind of hippie vibe um, festival. They must be way more inclusive. So we um, turned up, set up the site, rainbow flags, and often we use words like accepting, affirming, um, that you just sort of spelt the difference out between those, what it means to be an ally. Um, and we gave people an opportunity to put themselves on a spectrum of where they think they fitted in the spectrum. There was no judgment if they said, no, we're totally are conservative. There was no judgment for them to stick their pin in and just say, that's where I am. But it was just a way of them acknowledging, yeah, that, that is where I am. There was a, a lovely uh, transgender um, person that came along and was like, ah, oh, thank goodness you're here. I'm, I've been feeling really anxious about coming to this festival. And they kind of just hung out with us the entire time. And it was a really special time just to be able to kind of connect them and, and gate, provide a safe space for them. But unfortunately, um, you know, as, as you can imagine, the people started walking through the marketplace and sort of seeing this rainbow flag flying and sort of, you know, sort of noticed that we were being quite, um, you know, pro-LGBT Christian. And so this, um, the complaint started coming in and eventually the site manager came up to us and said, hey, um, you, 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 this, you can't be here. Um, this, you can't be doing this. And we said, well, it's actually in our application and, you know, you've signed it. And so they went away and got the application and said, oh, we, we didn't actually read it, but look, you can't, you can't be here. Um, you can't do this. And so um, the festival director came over to us and said, um, look, we'll, we'll compromise. If you take down all of your flags and all of the things, we'll let you just be here 
like just you guys just be here but you can't you can't approach people you can just continue to be this kind of space and so um i remember that the leaders of this um in CEDO are predominantly straight people who are just really wanting to be allies great people but we all went back to the house that we were staying at and and i really felt felt like that compromise was a real whitewash um so take away all your identity and go back to being a straight acting white guy, you know? And I thought, no, nah, I'm not, I'm not happy with that. And I, and I said to them, no, I think, I think if, if they want us to do that, well, let's just pack up and leave. So we went back and we said to them, no, no, we're not going to do that. We're just going to pack up and leave. And they were really upset with that because that would leave a massive gap in their stalls that they couldn't fill. So they, um, they tried to convince us to stay um, but with no compromise, obviously, to the to what we were allowed to do, um, and then eventually they offered the site, I think, to Life FM that they could expand their site into, um, and and we packed up and left. But I remember feeling re- like that was probably a really dark day for me. I remember driving home uh, or driving back to the after packing up, just feeling absolutely gut wrench that we had we had been wiped away essentially. Like, no, you cannot be. LGBT and be Christian, and um, then my 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 activist kind of per- personality kicked in. And um, there's a there's a Desmond Tutu has this really great um, little saying that um, uh, about oppression. And if you stand neutral in times of oppression, um, then you stand with the oppressor. And um, and I didn't want to stand neutral. I wanted you know this young LGBT young transgender person that had come along. They needed somebody to stand up for them. They needed somebody to say this, what happened is not okay. Um, so I have a couple of connections with the media and I, I broke, the, the, broke the story or told them what had happened and they said, let's meet on site the next day. They were obviously given media access and we met on site and I said to them, told them what had happened and they published a story. Um, and unbeknownst to me, the result of that story actually got back to their sponsors, Sanitarium, who um, are a sort of conservative Christian organisation um, anyway, but the Hamilton District Council, who is a major funder, and they said, we're, we're going to have to pull our funding for, from you guys um, because we can't be aligned with somebody who operates like this. We, I, don't, I don't know um, what the outcome has been, but for, for every year since, the article keeps looping up somebody will post it and say you know have you guys changed your tune and you know no one will respond to it yeah but it's it was a again it was a pretty tough time but i was i was it cost me my uh, so a lot of the friends that run festival one are uh, were friends and so it cost me those friendships um they were all really angry with me it cost me my relationship with my pastor at that stage because he was friends with all of them and said that i I went about it in a very diversive and, um, sorry, divisive and um, nasty way. Um, said that I had a demon um, in me, um, and yeah, I. But I, I look back and go, no, I was proud to stand up for what I believed in and and um, call out what I think was wrong. Mm. And yeah, I mean, I wanted you to tell that story, not so much to to bag on Festival One because they, they do a lot of good things as well, but to highlight the fact that this is still not a conversation that the New Zealand church is comfortable having, is it? Not at all, no. And I, you, you, especially not in a public way. Um, you know, I think they're quite happy to have it privately um, and in a controlled, in a controlled way. Um, you know, and there's a couple of great uh, people I really respect, like um, Mick Duncan for a, a you know, is is often a guy that's called on to have this conversation, but he's called on to have that conversation because they they know he's safe. They know he's going to end up with the way you know we should love gay people, but they they shouldn't be getting married. You know, um, so he's safe. They're not willing to have it actually with somebody who is a gay Christian who believes that you know in monogamous same sex marriage. You know, despite the obstacles that you come up against you still identify as Christian, you're still hanging around, you know, with with Christians. Why? Why not just toss in the towel like so many others have done? Yeah, such a good question. I, I definitely have thought about it. Like I definitely went through that journey. Um, but I, I, 
it's really weird. I feel like for me, my faith is like a, like a, like a, an elastic band or a rope or something where you can, I, you can sort of try and drift off, but the problem is you, I keep getting pulled back. Um, I think when you have been through, yeah, when you've been through the trials of having to really hold on to your faith or really kind of having to prove your faith, it really strengthens that rope or that, that line that holds you onto your faith. You know, because if, if God doesn't love me, then who the hell does, you know? Um, and so I've, I've had to stick to the fact that, you know, the, I remember, remember walking away um, from church one night thinking, nah, this is all bollocks, you know? Um, I, I remember reading somewhere that week that the Bible, you know, where it was a bunch of men essentially got together, prayed and said, these, these ones should go in, these ones shouldn't. Um, and this is what order they should go in. And I realized that the Bible actually wasn't something that sort of just fell out of the sky with Genesis to Revelation. And I thought, okay, so um, this whole faith thing is, is, is likely to be fake. It's just we're just following this kind of like cult where, you know, here's a book and it says this and, um, and, and, it, and it, so it's all made up. It's all fake. So I was at that moment doubting God and God was saying, but look back at your life at the evidence that I've given you to show you that I'm alive. And there were some little flashbacks of memories of when I've prayed for someone and, and they were able to move their leg. And, you know, there's other things that I've prayed for at an event that we organized that was well underfunded and someone donated a whole bunch of money. That was the exact amount we needed right down to the cent um, to cover the, the event. So there was all these kind of flashbacks that made me go, no, there is a God. You know, and that feeling that I get when I'm in worship or um, when I'm listening to a really good worship song and I just feel this flood of love come over me that then needs to love others, you know, and I'll get on the phone and just start encouraging people. For me, that was a sign that there is such thing as a God, there is such thing as a faith, and that thing is alive. Um, and therefore, if that thing is also what is talked about in the Bible, the Bible must be true like the stories that are in the Bible and the word, the words that are in the Bible must be true as well. It's not all fake. Um, so yeah, that was kind of a bit of my, uh, uh, like of my journey where I then realized that actually I can't, I can't give up the Christian side of my life and I can't give up the gay side of my life. So I'm just going to have to work out how to do this together. And that's been a real struggle. It hasn't been easy at all because, you know, the gay community sort of won't accept you because you're you're one of those people that have, you know, rejected them their entire life. Um, and the Christian community won't accept you fully because you've got this kind of like, oh, you know, you're not quite a Christian. You know, you've got you've got this kind of weird, loose theology. You know, yeah. So you just kind of have to deal with that. And and I get that even now. Even the churches that I go to now, which are quite liberal, you can still feel that you're sort of seen as a little bit of a, a little bit of a wacky, you know? Yeah. 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 Hard. Where do you find hope? Yeah. I, one of the awakened conferences, there was a, um, I think at the stage, he might've been 16. He was 16 and he turned up with his parents, um, to the conference. And I remember thinking, what are you doing here? You know, and why are your parents here? And I remember talking to him, and his parents were like, yeah, um, you know, our son's just come out. We go to a Presbyterian church and we just really want to support him. And that gave me hope. I was like, here's parents that are willing to love their son enough to, to not only allow him to come out, but also then encourage him to come along to a conference and support him through that conference. Um, his son, that, that guy now 18, came to the, to, the, to the last conference and he's now connected me with his pastor of this Presbyterian church who's committed to saying we want to be affirming church. You know, how, how do we do that? Um, that gives me hope. I get emails probably weekly from LGBT people saying I'm looking for a church so that we, there, the website, the system is working. I meet LGBT people who want to reconnect with church every day. That gives me hope. And I think the thing, 
it's it's too slow for me. I'm one of these people who wants it done yesterday, but um, I am seeing the slow progression, particularly with the Anglican Church down here in Wellington. I'm seeing the slow progression where they where they really want to fully affirm and welcome LGBT people, and they see that you know there's churches all over the world they can go to where they know they're not going to be safe, but actually let's create a space where they can be, you know, and that for me has been the biggest the biggest kind of plea I suppose to churches is that you know I can go to just about any one of the Pentecostal um, brethren churches here in Wellington and I know that I'm going to get told oh yeah no you you won't be allowed on leadership you won't be allowed to lead a small group or be on be on stage in a worship team you'll just have to sit in the pews and you know we'll offer you some prayer and counseling if we can where is the places where these people can go and, and, and be fully accepted and be fully welcomed and join the community, you know, and use their own talents and gifts um, to serve that community? Mm. So that's what gives me hope, that one day that will be, and, and I'm seeing it come, but one day that will be a much bigger thing. Yeah. Oh, thanks so much for taking time to talk to us today. No um, thank you for sharing your journey and being really vulnerable about that. Um, and thank you for what you're doing with Diverse Church and, and bringing a bit of heaven down to earth awesome thanks Andy no problem hello hello heaven will I hear you whisper to come near I'm so thankful to Craig for sharing his story now you're all going to have your own views of theology and how that intersects with people like Craig. But my heart is that, regardless of our theology, we would be people who learn how to listen and how to love. People who aren't scared of challenging conversations or people who are different. People who embrace those who are hurt, lonely, discarded, just as Jesus did. People who are prepared to be wrong for the sake of the well-being of others. If you do want to wrestle with this topic theologically, and I'd really encourage you to do that, follow the links in the show notes to Diverse Church and other resources that I'll include in there. Craig, you are a beautiful human. Here is a blessing for you. Craig, just as you have blessed so many through your youth work, your employment, and your heart for inclusion, may you also find people in your life who return that blessing to you, bringing the gift of life love and wholeness to you. As you continue to vulnerably share yourself with others, may you continue to find others prepared to do the same, bringing a greater sense of connection and unity in the spaces that you occupy. In those moments where your ongoing journey with the church seems just too hard or too full of pain, may you find places of shelter, of respite and of healing from the many stones thrown your way. May you find allies with whom you feel safe and loved. As you continue on in your faith, may you constantly be reminded of your incredible value and your worth in Christ, no matter what anyone else says. And may you remember all those times when your faith just wouldn't let you go. In the face of struggle, or rejection, or pain, for yourself or for others, may you continue to be inspired by all that gives you hope, by all that gives you a sense of belonging, and all that you know as love. And may that spur you on to dream about what could be, so you continue to have an ongoing impact in the lives of LGBT Christians throughout Aotearoa. May you know great times of joy as you gather with others who love and accept you, and find freedom and community with others who truly embrace you for who you are. And lastly, may you know you are seen, you are heard, and you are loved. Thanks to Strawn for the music and Rangi for the karakia, Join me next time when I talk to Carrie Thomas, educator, researcher, wife and mother. Uh, we talk about her love of dance and drama, her passion for seeing young people thrive, and her recent master's study looking at her own identity as Pākehā and what that means for her role as a teacher here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Until then, me inoi tātou. E tō mātou matua i te rangi, kia tapu tō ingoa, 
Kia tau mai tō rangatiratanga Kia mea te tau e pai ai ki runga ki te whenua Kia rite anō ki tō te rangi Humai kia mātou ai nei He taroma mātou mō tēnei rā Mūro mātou hara Me mātou hoki e muru nei I o te hunga E hara ana kia mātou Aua hoki mātou e kauia Kia whakawaia Engari whakorangia mātou I 